Turn with me in the back of the book of praise to the Hunterberg Catechism, Lord's Day 26, where we'll read the, the confession of the Reformed churches concerning baptism. Lord's Day 26, in the Heidelberg Catechism, page 540 of the Book of Praise. Here the question is asked, how does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing And with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means to receive forgiveness of sins from God through grace because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with his spirit means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. Where has Christ promised that he will wash us with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where it says, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated where Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. So far, our reading from the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the confessions of the Reformed churches, We'll now sing in connection with that from Psalm 51. You'll find that on your handout. And the connection between what we just read and the sermon and what we'll sing is the theme of washing. The theme of washing, which has to do with the uh, washing away of our sins and the washing of our souls. So Psalm 51, stanzas 1, 3, 5, and 6. Theme of washing. We'll now turn to God's word, turn in our Bibles to two prophecies. First of all, the prophecy of Ezekiel, chapter 36, and then Isaiah, chapter 44. So first, Ezekiel 36, the verses 22 to 27. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all your countries and bring you back into your own land. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone, remove from you your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So far from Ezekiel, now we'll turn to Isaiah. Turn backwards in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. And we'll read here the first five verses. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says, He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in the meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. So far, our reading from God's word. Dear congregation of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus instituted baptism to accompany the preaching of the gospel. He did so when he commissioned his apostles, when he sent out his apostles to go and make disciples of all nations. He told them, go and make disciples of all nations, and he told them how they were to go about it. He said, baptizing them and teaching them. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And so the command to make disciples was to be carried out along two lines that go together by means of baptism on the one hand and teaching on the other. These two are to go together, baptism and teaching. Now, I think it makes sense to most of us if if we're familiar with the church, if we've grown up in the church, that teaching would be a part of making disciples. Disciple, after all, means a learner. So teaching and learning, they go together. But what about baptism? How does baptism fit into the process of making Christian disciples? How does baptism go with teaching? What is the role of, or, or the purpose of baptism in relation to making disciples? This is the question that we'll try to answer together this afternoon in connection with Lord's Day 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism and on the basis of God's word in the Bible. So again, our question is, what is the role of Christian baptism in relation to the church's mission to make disciples of all nations? To make disciples for Christ. What is the role of baptism 
for mission. The theme we'll focus on as we seek to understand this question, as we'll see, this is a summary of the message of the sermon, is baptism pictures the washing that we all need. And we'll see first, just moving through kind of the three major sections of the Bible, we'll see first that baptism pictures the washing required by the law, that's the first five books of the, of the Bible, and then it pictures the washing promised by the prophets, and finally we'll see that it pictures the washing provided by Jesus Christ. So baptism pictures the washing that we all need. The the washing required by the law, promised by the prophets, and provided by Jesus Christ. So first let's see how this washing that we all need was required by the law of the Old Testament. We'll see how this was the case for the people of Israel as a whole, then for the priests of Israel, and finally for those Israelites who recovered from leprosy. So first, the people of Israel. When God redeemed the children of Abraham, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt, how did he do so? He did so through blood and through water. First, there was the blood of lambs that they sprinkled on the door frames of their houses at the Passover so that the angel of death passed over and spared their firstborn sons but killed the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. So you see, the Israelites were redeemed through blood. But second, there was the water of the Red Sea that they were redeemed through. The Lord drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and all his army in the waters of the sea, but he led the people of Israel on dry ground through the waters, through the sea, with the waters on their left and on their right. The Israelites were redeemed through water, just as they were redeemed through blood. And then when God gathered his, this redeemed people around Mount Sinai to meet with them and to define his relationship with them with a special covenant, there again, water and blood are involved. In the first instance, before the Lord God came down to meet with the people in fire and smoke on Mount Sinai to declare to them the ten words of his covenant, On that occasion, he first required that the people be consecrated and that they wash their garments. You can find that in Exodus chapter 19, just before the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. So they had to wash their garments, obviously, with water. And then, too, there was blood. There was blood involved in their consecration. Exodus chapter 24, when Moses for the first time read the book of the covenant in the hearing of all the people, then he took the blood of sacrificed animals, he took that blood and he threw it on the people, splattered it on the people, and he said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so you see the people of Israel were consecrated and sanctified as God's special people by water and by blood just as they were redeemed through water and blood. But not only were the people as a whole consecrated in this way, 
when God redeemed them and made his covenant with them at Sinai. But God also required of the priests who were to serve as representatives of the people in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and later the temple. They too had to be consecrated for his service. How? By blood and water. You can read this, for example, in Exodus chapter 29. The Lord said to Moses, Now this is what you shall do to Aaron and his sons to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And then he gave various instructions for their ordination, their appointment to office, including this instruction, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Exodus 29 verse 4. So this was how the ordination ceremony was to begin, with washing with water. Then a bit later in the ceremony, there was to be a sprinkling with blood. You shall kill a ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands on the great toes of their right feet. Then you shall take part of the blood that is in the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Exodus 29, verse 20 and 21. And so when the priests were ordained and consecrated, they were to be washed with water and sprinkled with the blood of sacrificed animals. Do you notice a pattern? Here's the pattern that we see so far. First, the people as a whole, and then the priests of the people, They were consecrated to the Lord by being washed with water and with blood. This pattern is seen once more in the requirements for the cleansing and readmission of those who had been expelled or excommunicated, as it were, from the covenant community because of uncleanness, because of leprosy, the disease of leprosy. You see, if if an Israelite was cured of leprosy, They couldn't just by virtue of that be let back into the camp because they not only had to be cured, but they had to be cleansed. They had to be cleansed before they could be readmitted into the congregation of Israel. This is in Leviticus chapter 14. In accordance with the Lord's instructions in Leviticus 14, the priest was to sprinkle blood on the person seven times. Just like when the priests were consecrated. Those who were cured of leprosy also had to have blood sprinkled on them seven times. And then the person was to wash their clothes and bathe their body in water. And so, the Israelite people, the priests, and people who recovered from leprosy, they were all required, and here's the point, they were all required as part of the law of the Old Testament to be washed with water and with blood. Why? Well, as part of their consecration or sanctification or devotion to the Lord as his special people. Perhaps you're already beginning to see how this might connect with the washing of baptism for the New Testament church. Indeed, There does appear to be a fairly close correspondence between these Old Testament washings and the New Testament washing of Christian baptism, doesn't there? 
But before we get there, what were these Old Testament washings designed to teach the Israelites of old? And what do they teach us today? Well, these washings were designed by God to teach the Israelites and us concerning the way in which people who've become defiled and contaminated by sin. How such people, the way how such people may enter into the holy presence of God to experience life instead of death. And what is that way? It's the way of cleansing. It's the way of washing. We need to be washed. We need to be made clean. As we sang in Psalm 51, wash me, make me clean. Or as Psalm 24 puts it, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord and who shall stand on his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, the psalm answers. But who of us can say that truly about ourselves? Who of us can say, I have clean hands and I have a pure heart? Can you say that? Not unless you have been washed. Unless we are washed, we cannot enter the holy presence of God and live to see another day. Because we are defiled and contaminated by our sin, by our rebellion against God. This is why God required washing with blood and water under the Old Testament law. He did so to picture the spiritual washing from sin that they needed. And that's the same washing that we all need, isn't it? In order to enter the holy presence of God and live in blessed fellowship with him, both now and forever. Well, how wonderful it is then that the washing that we all need was not only required by the Old Testament law, but also secondly, this washing was promised by the Old Testament prophets. This brings us to our second point, the washing promised by the prophets. You see, the prophets recognized the spiritual lesson that the symbolic washings of Israel and the priests were meant to teach. And so they called the Israelites to see it for themselves. They told the Israelites in their prophecies, God requires more than the outward washing of the body. He requires the inward washing of the soul. The external washings picture that internal washing that we all need to be in God's presence and live. The whole reason for the Israelites being sent into exile was because they were contaminated by sin and God could not tolerate them in his presence unless they were washed. And so Isaiah said to Israel in Isaiah 1 verse 16, speaking not of outward washing, but speaking of inward washing, he said, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Similarly, Jeremiah said to them in Jeremiah 4, verse 14, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? And in this way, the prophets, they sought to bring home to their hearers' hearts the spirituality of God's law. 
to show how it points out our need for spiritual salvation that only God can provide. The law requires of us what we are unable to provide for ourselves, clean hands and a pure heart. Speaking partly metaphorically and partly literally perhaps, my hands and your hands, they are guilty of transgression. We've done things that have made us guilty. We've committed acts of sin against God and our fellow humans. And the guilt from these sins is like dirt on our hands that we can't scrub away with literal physical water. Because it's not physical dirt, but spiritual. Maybe that reminds you of Pilate. After he he delivered Jesus over to be crucified, he tried to wash the guilt of that action off of his hands with water. Or you can think of Macbeth, if any of you remember Shakespeare's Macbeth, trying to wash out the, the guilt of sin with water. You can't do it. Washing with water is not the remedy. It points to the remedy. And that remedy must then be something spiritual, that it corresponds to water, something to wash away the dirt of our souls. And similarly, we are unable to provide for ourselves a pure heart. We can't provide ourselves pure, clean hands, neither can we provide ourselves a pure heart. And even if we were able to have the guilt of our hands washed away, we would still have the pollution and corruption of our hearts to deal with. Our hearts are factories of sinful and selfish motives and attitudes and thoughts and desires which defile and contaminate our hearts even before we've actually done anything wrong. Sin is not only the things we do, but it's also the natural inclination of our fallen hearts. And so the washing that we need, to which outward washing points as a sign, The washing we need is an inward washing of our hearts that will purify and transform our hearts from this natural inclination to sin. And wondrously, this is exactly the kind of washing that God promised through the Old Testament prophets. God promised that he was going to provide the washing that no human being can provide for themselves. The washing that we all need the washing not of literal physical water on the outside of the body, but the soul-cleansing and life-creating washing of his Holy Spirit. We read of this together in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. Ezekiel 36 is perhaps the best example of this promise. There God made this special promise to the remnant of Israel. Notice the parallel between water and the Spirit in these words. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. These are many ways of saying basically the same thing. The promise of water and the promise of the Spirit, they are placed side by side to show that the Holy Spirit himself corresponds to that water. That it is he, the Holy Spirit, 
who like water that cleanses the body, so the Holy Spirit will cleanse the soul. The Holy Spirit, to put it in other words, is the clean water that the Lord promised through the prophets. The same point is made in a poetic way in Isaiah 44, verse 3, where God promises, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. Notice how God's promise to pour his spirit. He will pour his spirit. How that promise is parallel to his promise to pour life-giving water. What do you pour? You pour water. So when the Bible speaks of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it's picturing the spirit being poured out like water. So this shows us that God means for us to understand that the Holy Spirit himself is the soul-cleansing and life-giving water that he promises to pour on his people for the washing and regeneration of their hearts. This is the washing that we all need, which was promised by God through the Old Testament prophets, the washing of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And yet in order for this to happen to us, in order for the Holy Spirit to be given, to be poured out, First, Christ had to pour out his blood for us as a sacrifice to wash away the guilt of our sins. The prophet Isaiah also prophesied the Messiah had to pour out his soul to death and be numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53. His blood had to be shed as an atoning sacrifice for sins. So this brings us in the third place to the washing provided by Jesus Christ in fulfillment both of the Old Testament requirement of the law and the promise of the prophets. Jesus provides the washing that we all need, the washing of our souls by his blood and spirit for the removal of our guilt, the cleansing of our guilt, and for the renewal of our hearts. Now what we find out when we come to the New Testament is that unlike the washing with water and the sprinkling with blood in the Old Testament where they always come, seems to come side by side, well, the washing with Christ's blood and spirit is not two separate washings, but it is one single washing in the New Testament. To put that in other words, we receive the washing of Christ's blood when we are washed with his spirit. The Holy Spirit applies to our hearts the power of Christ's blood to wash away the guilt of our sins at the same time as he enters our hearts to impart new life to overcome our sinful corruption. So when the New Testament speaks of the Spirit's washing, we ought to understand that this includes the washing with Christ's blood. That is the application personally of what Christ has accomplished for us by the shedding of his blood on the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God. The Holy Spirit applies that to the individual's heart. The Bible speaks of this washing with Christ's blood in a few different places. For example, in the first letter of John and in the book of Revelation, 1 John 1 verse 7 says, the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Revelation 7 speaks of those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And the Apostle Peter also speaks in his first letter of sprinkling with Jesus' blood. 
when we're washed with the blood of Jesus, the guilt of all our sin is completely washed away. So when are, when are we washed with Christ's blood? When are we washed with his spirit? In the New Testament, the gift of redemption goes hand in hand with the gift of renewal. And both are applied by the Holy Spirit to everyone who repents and believes the gospel. So they are applied when we believe in Jesus Christ. So how does this relate to the ordinance of Christian baptism with water? It relates quite closely. The washing with water in Christian baptism, it pictures, just as the Old Testament washings pictured, the washing with Christ's blood and spirit that we all need. The washing that we receive by grace alone through faith in Christ. When John the Baptist, the final prophet of the Old Covenant, was preparing the way for the Messiah, he said to the people he had baptized in Mark 1, verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he, Jesus Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Notice here the same parallel between the Spirit and water that we saw in the prophets. Well, after Christ died and rose again from the dead, And before he ascended to the Father, Jesus spoke to his disciples twice about baptism. Once about the picture and once about the thing pictured. Once about the sign, once about the thing signified. First, the baptism mentioned in Matthew 28. He spoke about a baptism with water in the name of the triune God, and the disciples, which the disciples were to administer in his name. That's in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. But then second, so that was the picture. Second, the reality in Acts chapter 1, Jesus spoke about a baptism with the Holy Spirit, which he himself would administer. He said, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit Not many days from now, Acts 1, verse 7. So which baptism was Jesus talking about then? He was referring, of course, to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Pentecost was a baptism. Not a baptism with water, but a baptism, a washing with Christ's blood and spirit poured out richly on Christ's people in order to consecrate them as the new covenant people of God. Remember how Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, consecrated the old covenant people by washing them with water and sprinkling the blood of sacrificed animals on them? Well, that was a picture pointing forward to what happened at Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, Christ, as the mediator of a new covenant, as the better Moses, he consecrated his new covenant church by baptizing them, not with outward washing of water and blood, but he baptized them with the Holy Spirit. This baptism of the church as a whole on the day of Pentecost, of course, was a one-time event that has lasting implications for the church as a whole. But not only was the church as a whole baptized with the Spirit on that day of Pentecost, but so was each and every individual member of the body 
who repented and believed the gospel personally. As the apostle Paul wrote in Titus 3 verse 5, God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That is to say, when we believe in Christ, God pours out his Holy Spirit into our hearts and washes them in the way of regeneration and renewal. As Paul also said to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1 verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in Christ, then you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So while on the one hand Christ poured out his spirit on his whole church, once and for all time on the day of Pentecost. On the other hand, we receive the same baptism of the Holy Spirit as individuals throughout the history of the church until Christ returns when we believe the gospel personally for ourselves. The washing that was required by the law, the washing that was promised by the prophets is the washing that is now provided by Jesus Christ through faith in him. This washing is the baptism with the Holy Spirit, whom Christ poured out on his body, the church at Pentecost, and whom he continues to pour out into our hearts when we believe the gospel. By this baptism, Christ washes our souls from the guilt and pollution of our sin by the power of his blood and spirit. And when we are thus washed with Christ's blood, we receive forgiveness of sins from God through grace because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross, as it says in the Catechism. And when we are thus washed with his spirit, we are renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. Again, as it says in the Catechism. But notice, it's not the washing with water that does this. It's the washing with the Holy Spirit through faith. And so if this is the baptism that Christ provides, the washing, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, what role then does baptism with water have? What, does it, what role does it have in making Christian disciples? Does baptism with water actually make disciples? Does Pouring water on the body make somebody a Christian? Even if you say the right words, the right formula, does that make a Christian? That's what Roman Catholics teach. But the Bible teaches that baptism with water does not make a person a true Christian. Only the baptism with the Holy Spirit by Christ himself makes a person a true Christian. And this is not inseparably connected to baptism with water. A person could be baptized with water but never be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Remember, baptism with the Spirit goes hand in hand with true faith in Christ. So if that's not the case, that baptism actually makes disciples, does baptism with water then symbolize that the person is a disciple? Does it symbolize that a person has received the baptism of the Spirit by faith and so become a true disciple? 
Does baptism symbolize faith and discipleship? Does it symbolize the inward change that has happened to the person? Or the disciple's commitment to Christ? Is baptism a kind of profession of faith ceremony? That's what the Baptists and the Mennonites teach about baptism with water. What does the Bible say? I've tried to show you this afternoon what the Bible says, not just in the New Testament, going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and the law, and then also in the middle of the Bible and the prophets. The Bible throughout teaches this. It can be summarized in this sentence. The Bible teaches us that Christian baptism with water pictures. It's a picture. It's a picture of the washing that we all need for the cleansing and renewal of our souls from the guilt and pollution of sin so that we may live in eternal fellowship with God both now and forever. Baptism is a picture of what the law requires and what the gospel provides. This washing with which our baptism with water in the name of the triune God pictures is the same washing as God required of his people Israel in the law and promised to them through the prophets, the washing which Jesus provides for everyone who believes in him. So what is the role of Christian baptism in relation to the church's mission to make disciples of all nations for Christ? Its role is to be a picture of the washing we all need. It bears witness as a visible sign and seal to the gospel promise that everyone who believes in Christ will most certainly receive this washing from him. It's a visible sign and seal of the word of the gospel. And so let us also today receive the testimony of our own baptism if we have been baptized with water. Let us receive that as God's own sign and seal that through faith in Christ, his blood and spirit do wash away the impurity of our souls. That is all our sins, all your sins, as certainly as water washes away dirt from the body. Baptism pictures the washing we all need And it testifies to the promise of the gospel that Jesus provides this washing and administers it to everyone who comes to him in faith. Have you been baptized with water in the name of the triune God? And believe the gospel promise that it signifies. Come to Christ by faith each day. And know for certain that your sins are washed away and your heart has been made new through Christ's blood and spirit. Amen.